You are listening to Claret and Blue, an Aston Villa podcast brought to you by Birmingham Live. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Claret and Blue podcast. We've managed to line up another Claret and Blue guest for you. Can I just say a welcome and hello to Paul Faulkner? How are you, Paul? Hi, Matt. Yeah, very well, thank you. How are you? I'm all right, thank you. Not too bad. The first thing I was going to kick off with, Paul, as, as we've done with, with most of our guests during the recent weeks, was how are you coping with these kind of strange and um, strange and worrying times? I guess, you know, coping okay. Uh, family, colleagues, friends are, are safe and well, thank goodness. And I suppose that's the uh, the top priority, isn't it? I mean, probably like, like everyone else, you're, you're chomping at the bit to get back to some sense of normality but um balancing that up with doing what we're told being smart and sensible and um yeah but can't wait for for this to sort of pass and to uh say get back to that semblance of uh of just normal life again so what we're going to do we're going to we're going to kick off by by taking you who is at the beginning seems as um obvious a place to start so can you talk us through Paul I think it was 2006 when yourself and Randy Lerner first got involved with Villa first of all how how did your relationship your working relationship with Randy start you know it goes back sort of um fair bit pre-Villa I'd started um I've been working at uh, MBNA uh which is a, a credit card company over here was based in in Chester and uh Spent a number of years working for them, actually in the UK, and then I spent some time in the uh, in the States as well, where they were headquartered. and um, And uh, you know, the, the Lerner family were the largest private um, sort of shareholders of of the bank, and um, Randy's father and then himself were, were chairman. And uh, well, I didn't, I wasn't working directly for him then, but got to know a number of of the senior managers. And I suppose um, a few years later. Uh, that connection um, presented itself as an opportunity for me to go and work for the family uh, in a in a sort of broad ranging capacity. Again, this is all before um, Aston Villa time, and so I started doing a bit of work for them over here uh, and in the states. Um, really, sort of supporting in, in a number of different ways. A bit of a we kind of think I was called an analyst at the time, but um, they had some interests in in, in retail and, and leisure. Um, in the states, and sort of got involved in that, and it, it just evolved. So, before the, the the search for football club began, would you would you talk about football or, or soccer over a point anyway? Yeah, I mean, I mean um, you know, Randy's a you know was an anglophile, um, you know, had long had a house here, had been to university here. I think that's all well well known, and um, massive football fan. Um, you know, sort of um, loved playing the game uh, as well as watching it, and so. Um, yeah, you know, it sort of came up in conversation. I mean, quite early on um, in my, my working relationship, uh, he decided that he wanted to look at buying uh, a team. And I did some work on that behind the scenes, bits, various bits of due diligence and just background research um, and kind of, well, helping to um, just bring him up to speed with, with the mechanisms over here. And there's obviously a lot of other contacts in the UK people we went and spoke to um as I guess he just familiarized himself with with how the game worked the, the sort of the structures and the opportunities and then as always you know people sort of say there's lots of reasons I guess why he ended up deciding to to purchase Villa um you know the history the heritage sort of being here in in Birmingham and and the opportunities that it felt that that would present um and probably most importantly you know it was available at the time you know Mr Ellis was looking to sell, the club was was on the market. And so there was that moment where the decision was made, right, let's 
let's try to get this done. You mentioned the fact that, that you and Randy both not only like watching football but liked having a kick around. Did you ever did you ever play football with him? Yeah, you know, he would sort of kick around and uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and um, he was a good player, very skillful, very talented. Uh, whereas I was a bit of a, a, I was a defender and a bit of a clogger, like kicking people. I think he was far more of a, a sort of skillful uh, right winger. I'd have said. <laughs> I can't just picture the scene now. When the Villa thing became available, I don't know how much you can say about this, Paul. But as part of your due diligence and as part of your homework, which incidentally sounds like the best kind of school project ever having to go and do, do do research around football clubs that you want to buy. Were there any other clubs that were that were considered? Not to any um, real sort of degree, no. no. We sort of did a big sweep, I guess, and you're, you're looking at the, the state of, of um, you know, the game at the time and, and, you know, sort of various clubs you know, were touted as being on the market, but it was only ever, ever Villa, and that very quickly sort of crystallised, I guess, as I say. And there were lots of reasons... For that, but um, was the only uh, club that that we ever, you know, sort of looked at and and wanted to buy. Can you remember kind of how the first contact would have would have come about, and, and the first meetings that you'd have had with with Mr. Edison and Steve Stride, and the kind of I don't know the power brokers at Villa back then. We're going back a few years now, aren't we? Sort of <laughs> about fourteen years, which is scary. But um, I mean, you know. There were you know, intermediaries involved. As I say, we knew that the club uh, was on the market. I think Mr. Ellis used uh, Rothschilds as a as his sort of um, broker, and um, so we made connections and then came up to Villa Park. It would have been say summer '06, uh, and, and started to have those those conversations. You know, with Mr. Ellis, he very much um, you know was was in charge and was driving it from the, the club side at that side at that time. And uh, yeah, you know, it, it all progressed quite quickly. Obviously, you know, the, the, the club, the shares were listed. And so there was a, a very sort of open uh, process, but it, it, it moved very fast over that, that summer. And, um, you know, price was agreed. And, um, and you know, it was, it, so it's at the time, again, you got the season starting, you know, um, David O'Leary had left. So you had all the questions around the, the new manager and you're trying to get this, this deal sorted as quickly as possible. Because you know, once you've made that commitment, you want to edit influence as much as you possibly can, and, and certainly, uh, you know, the season sharpens your, your mind and your, your focus. For somebody who only gets their kind of fix of what happens inside boardrooms through Sunderland till I die, give <laughs> us um, give us a little kind of fly on the wall flavour of, of what those meetings are like. You know, kind of is it tea and biscuits? Is is, is Doug Ellis kind of a difficult man to, to barter with at the time? Is it all very kind of cordial? It was very cordial. I'm sure there were, were biscuits. I can't uh, quite remember back, but um, you know, I think that that Doug knew that that Randy was serious. He knew the family background. He knew that they had the funds, and so in some ways, you know, once you decide that that you want to sell something and you have a buyer who really wants to buy it and have and has the funds, then uh, it can all move pretty um, quickly and straightforwardly. Um, and you know, there were two uh, individuals there, both you know men of principles. And so once they made the agreement, and I was there, and they sort of got up, shook hands, saw that moment. It really was, you know, done like that, and um, everything moved very, very quickly. So probably not quite as dramatic as as you might have thought, Matt. You know, uh, we'll put some moody music over the back background. Don't don't worry. Um, I was gonna I was gonna say when when the deal got over the line, was there a moment where kind of 
you and Randy kind of looked at each other, you know, gazed around Bodymore Heath or Villa Park and just kind of, I don't know, said wow or high-fived or, 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 or can you can you remember that, that, that exact moment when the deal was over the line? I can't remember the exact moment, I'm afraid, but, you know, you can sort of recall that, that sense of, wow, this is actually happening. Absolute excitement. I think the enormity of it as well, you know, and, and like you say, you know, being at the training ground and certainly uh, at Villa Park, you know, it's such a beautiful stadium, such an amazing venue. And you sort of walk out and, and when it's empty and you just have those little moments and you go down by the, the pitch side and sort of spin around and see the, the stands, you, you know, you, it might sound a bit corny, but, you know, you, you can see so many um, images playing out in, in your mind, all those iconic moments. And it definitely sort of dawns on you that, that wow, you know, what a, what a responsibility, what a privilege as well to be involved. And kind of how can, um, how can, can you as a, you know, a custodian for that period um, try to, to carry this forward? And obviously back in 06, there was, you know, um, so many exciting plans, and I suppose you know, Mr. Ellis had had wanted to sell because you know uh, the club had struggled for a few years, and so the plans to come in and inject um, new ownership, money into the the club, into the facilities, into the squad, um, new manager coming on board as well. You know, it was really exciting. You must have taken a football onto the pitch, hadn't you? The first time you were down there. <laughs> you know what? I think you know, you're so sort of scared of. Uh, of damaging the the pitch or the the, the grass, and uh, certainly Jonathan Caldwell, who was the the groundsman there at the time, and you know won all so many awards. He, uh, I'm so sure, he'd have sat somewhere in the stands with a with an air rifle or something. But I mean, years later, I uh, I always sort of thought it was like it sounds a bit silly, Matt, but you know, real sacred ground, and you've got to be um, so careful, you know, not to go and make an idiot of yourself. But I did get a chance in an off season to to play on the the pitch and you know probably past my prime as a as a player but when you're running around you realize just how big it is that the highlight was uh, I got I had to take a penalty in front of the whole tent There's only sort of 15 people probably behind the goal and all of them trying to put me off but kept my head down and slammed it straight down the middle so I can always say I scored a pen at Villa Park at least oh brilliant as soon as I'd have signed the check I'd have had I'd have had a ball out I'd have been kick, I'd been doing keep ups I'd have had my, my shirt it's that Michael Knighton moment isn't it you know the, oh, the chap who nearly yeah. bought Man United so you've got to be careful you know because those those sorts of things can come back and haunt you once you you and Randy had kind of I don't know got your feet under the table for want of a, a better phrase was he forgive my ignorance Paul was he yourselves or was he Doug who kind of appointed Martin O'Neill it was Doug at the time because obviously um, I think that the you know it was later in August when everything had officially gone through. So um, yeah, Doug appointed Martin that summer, and you know it was one of those moments where Martin, everyone was as open as you can be. Martin knew that the club was for sale. He knew that there was um, you know, this potential buyer. He'd met and had a conversation with Randy, but. There's still, I suppose, an element of a leap of faith because, you know, all kinds of things could have happened and all the situation could have changed. So um, you know, it didn't in the end, but no, it was Doug who appointed Martin. I think the first game that season was was at the Emirates, the first game at the Emirates, actually, and 1-1 um, draw. And you know, we were watching that from a distance because the deal hadn't gone through. What was your role and your involvement initially, Paul, for the, for the first couple of years? At first, it was there was no formal 
involvement. I was you know, working sort of directly for Randy Edza, sort of very closely with him and, and traveling with him and um, was still you know, living in, in the US. We spent a lot of time in Birmingham, a lot of time at the club and, you know, I've been sort of there with him. And I suppose by the nature of that, you're then getting to know the staff, you're getting to know, you know the manager, the coaching team, what's going on and just being uh, a bit of a sounding board, really. I mean, looking back, it was um, it was an absolutely brilliant time because you know, I was a little bit like sort of man without portfolio, if you know what I mean. No direct sort of title, but involved in a lot of things and, and able to um, watch, learn, listen, soak stuff up, um, you know, kind of um, help and support and advise where I where I can as well. So yeah, it was it was a, a really really a fascinating time. So what was the? It must have been surreal to start with. What was the first moment when you actually kind of stopped and thought? Actually, I'm working in football now. And was there an element of being not starstruck, but by kind of enjoying that vibe of being around such a kind of I don't know an exciting scene? Yeah, you know, you, you, it's it's strange, I think, because when you're, I mean, obviously, yes, you know, it's pretty remarkable, you know. And uh, there you are working in football for someone who's grown up, loved the game, and you're suddenly on on the inside. Yeah, at the same time, I think when when you're doing it, you don't really sort of stop and think about it. It just becomes what you're doing you know and um and you're surrounded you know you're in you're in the industry and you're meeting people and um it sort of normalizes quite quickly i think you certainly don't really get uh starstruck because you're just talking to people you're on the phone you know so someone like like martin obviously as a manager at the time you know you're sitting down and you are having the cup of tea and the biscuits and talking about plans and talking about family not just talking about about football just getting to know people and so it, it sort of becomes what you do quite quickly I mean I think in the early days and I, I want to say it was in my mind it's like January 07 but we had a, a night game against Chelsea and um, I remember we got a message that, that Robert Plant had come he had a close friend who uh, unfortunately had uh, I think a, a terminal illness and you know, he'd, he'd taken a box for the game and, and him and his mates were sort of uh, taking their friend out and having a, a you know a really good time the friend being a Villa fan and uh we got a message that he wanted to to see Randy and sort of say hello, and so we went up to the box and went in and and had a chat. And I must admit that was one of those surreal moments where I'm going, I'm standing sort of next to Robert Plant, and he's um, you know just sort of chatting away, and you kind of go, wow. No doubt there were those moments, um, but as I say, from the, the football side, it very quickly just became what you're doing, and you know you don't have, you can't be starstruck in that because you're in it. And actually, you know, the competitive juices get flowing then, and it's all just about what's what's you know the best for for for, for the club. What was this is the um, this is the the million dollar question. What what was it like with Martin O'Neill then? Because we we only got to to see glimpses of, glimpses of him at press conferences and match days, um, and that was <laughs> that was interesting and insightful enough. What was it like when you are kind of dealing dealing with him on a, on a day to day basis? You know, Martin was great. He was absolutely brilliant um, with me. And he was really generous to me as well. And I suppose, um, you know, the four years where I worked, you know, sort of with him and alongside him, you know, he, I'd say certainly, you know, that, that first period, and you, you were asking what that was like, he a little bit took me under his wing, you know, and, and again, really helped to introduce me to um, you know, people within the game and contacts he's got and, um, you know, his way of thinking. So we spent a lot of time together, and um, and he was great. Obviously, you know, he's you know he's the gaffer as well, and so he'll have different personas. And, and certainly, you know, Martin had that that fierce will to win, that that, that competitive 
nature, which is why you know he'd been so successful as a as a player and and as a manager. But um, yeah, he was absolutely um, fantastic to me, and you, know, you maybe got to see um, a more private side certainly than I'm sure you would have seen just in sort of the the press conferences back back then. It's I don't know how to whether this is a, is a correct analogy, but it was almost like the kind of early early throes of a relationship, a kind of a honeymoon honeymoon period that probably lasted for, I don't know, for, for as long as Villa were, were, were knocking on the door of those Champions League spots. Is, is that fair? Did it feel like kind of the club was really on the brink of something? And you, you sort of look back and there was almost a slightly unreal, natural upward curve, wasn't there? And, and obviously 06, 07, you know, new owner, new manager, the team you know, sort of figuring itself out. I think that was that January when we were able to buy um, Ashley Young and John Carew came in and Sean Maloney. And, you know, that was the first real opportunity, I guess, that that, that Randy and Martin had had to uh, do some serious business. So I think Pet- uh, Stan Petroff had come in at the end of the, um, the previous window. And, and you know, the, the year had its ups and downs. But, you know, we finished with that that brilliant game, um, you know, where we with the, the team from... The European Cup winners came back, and Villa Park was packed. And um, was it? I think three one. I think Patrick Berger scored a brilliant goal. And you know, and at the end of that season, there was just such a buzz. And then, of course, that built, didn't it? And you know, the next sort of three years, you know, the team really kicked on. Some more exciting signings. Um, you know, the European runs, obviously the, the the sort of cup runs, and getting to um, to Wembley in, in twenty ten. And it, it felt quite, almost quite ordered. Um, yet, you know, you wouldn't ever have known it. And you know, when you're winning in football, everything seems easy and straightforward. And um, there was definitely that sense of just, yeah, we can keep going, we can keep building, we can um, keep achieving. And I think that 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 just created that sense of of excitement at the time. Difficult to pin down one moment, I'm sure. But what what would have been your highlights of those first first four years? There were no, so many. I mean, one moment which does stick out was the uh, the Ashley Young winner up at Goodison, which um, I think was sort of December 2008. Um, and just for that, that that sheer moment of going sort of mad, you know, we'd um, been holding on at, at 2-1 and um, yeah, we got into injury time and Joe Lescott had, had scored. And, you know, the, you sat there, obviously, as a, you know, the away fan, the away directors, so you sat there and kind of hanging your head. And I'm thinking, God, you know, the M6 is going to be a nightmare getting back to Birmingham. And, with, you know, it's two points gone. But uh, And um, I could remember, because people were still on their feet around us. And it was all goes to Tim Howard, and he boots it out. And suddenly, I think Gabby flicked it on, and, and Ashley picks it up, zigzags through, and, and knocks it in. And um, just sort of had a, a moment of going absolutely mental. And actually, Martin's brother was was with us and he was um, sat in the row behind me and he kind of did a bunny hop over the seats. Uh, I think almost some kind of hugging each other. I think almost went over the, the railings. It was uh, it was quite an amazing moment. And, you know, just, um, I mean, that's just one game and one goal and that's the, the, the beauty of football. But that, that always sticks out in my, my mind as just being... Um, such an incredible moment, but you know, it was a, it was a brilliant ride, you know, for the whole club. And I suppose um, it felt, it did feel really close. And you know, even to the point when, again, I think this would have been 2010, where um, the penultimate game of the season, you know, we went up to, to Man City, and it was still in the 
um, in the balance, really, I think, between us, City and, and Spurs for that fourth spot. And, um, you know, it was it was 1-1 at the time from my, my memory serves me correctly. And, and John Carew hit the, the crossbar, the, you know, a shot, and the ball sort of bounced out and Craig Bellamy picked it up and ran up the other end and, and scored. And, uh, you know, we ended up losing 3-1, I think. And you know, the next two nights, we also lost the, um, the Reserve League final and then the Youth Cup final. And, you know, in some ways you had three days in a row where, where different teams within the club had, had lost. And yet, when you also, which is hard, it's horrible to take that, yet you also sort of stopped and thought, wow, we were, we were there. We were right in those, those moments. And that was that sense of strength, I guess, which felt like it was running right through the club. And that gives you you know, that, that hope and that optimism for, for what could happen. It didn't quite play out, I guess, in, in subsequent years. I'm sure we'll, we'll come on to that. But, um, you know, it was, there's so many moments there, you know, sort of good, bad, just enjoying the, the ride, really, and the, the sense of, certainly it's a lot easier when you're competing at the top of the table. You mentioned those, those scenes at Goodison in the director's box. Is that a difficult thing, Paul, in terms of, you know, kind of showing the correct decorum and etiquette when you're in the posh seats like that? Yes. <laughs> I think, uh, and that wasn't uh, a moment where there was much decorum. But, you know, in the main, um, you know, it's about just good sportsmanship, isn't it? And, you know, the longer you're involved, you get to know people from different clubs. And it's a lot of mutual respect between clubs and certainly between, you know, my sort of peers and, and counterparts. And so, you know, you've sort of been there where um, you know, you've got to learn to, to win well and, and lose well, because that's the nature of competitive sport. So I think you do try to uh, control yourself and uh, be respectful, definitely. Not always possible, because that's the, the nature of the game, isn't it? But um, at the same time, it's always about, you know, making sure you can sort of shake hands and look people in the eye afterwards. Back then, or throughout any of your time at Villa, what would a, and I'm, I'm sure there's not a typical day in the life, but what would a typical day in the life of Paul Faulkner look like at Aston Villa? Oh, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's just no no um, typical day, really. And I suppose, you know, for me, uh, you're trying to balance your time between you know, the owner and if, if I was, was in Birmingham and, and Randy was in, in the States, you've got a five or six hour time gap you know you've also got the manager you know what does he need and how can you support him and again you know during uh, off season or, or transfer windows you're probably speaking or you would be speaking um an awful lot more and then you've got you know, the business side to run and you know hundreds of people working there and you're trying to sort out commercial deals and what's happening at the ticket office and uh you know what's happening just with the the operation as a whole so yeah you know busy and and heck and um, but that's where you have a great team around you um, and we were fortunate to, to have that at, at Villa and uh, an awful lot gets done but definitely no typical day so we, with all those elements that, that you can control or that you can that you can at least kind of put put things in place to try to control how I don't know galling's probably the wrong word but how frustrating is it when like we said Villa were, were knocking on the on the the door of the Champions League you know three years in a row and everything that you're doing behind the scenes is to try to pave the way for that. But at the end of it all, you're at the whim of whether whether a centre forward puts a ball in a net or not. Is that yeah. does that kind of you know as somebody who kind of go speaking personally goes from my job trying to not be a control freak but try to trying to influence what I can. How hard is that when when you, you you have to step back away from that and just what will be will be. 
yeah, it's really hard. It's really hard. Again, it's the the nature of, of professional sport, though, that, you know, you, you can't control that. And, you know, at three o'clock on a Saturday or whatever time you're, you're playing, um, you know, it all depends on what happens on the, the bit of grass. And um, I think you have to very quickly um, make peace with that or else, you know, you, you know, unless you can tie up a pair of boots and get out there yourself, there's not much you can do. So you've got to learn to, to live with it. It's funny, actually, there's... Um, the film Moneyball, I don't know if you've seen it, you know, about baseball with Brad Pitt, and he's the, the general manager of the, the Oakland A's, but had this sort of routine of never watching the games. When the game was on, he'd go and work out in the, the gym in the stadium and or just sort of you know, listen on the radio or check in or hear the crowd noise. And um, I remember watching that, and I kind of went, I get that. And in some ways, you know, the game is the bit you can't control, you know, and you're dealing in the curve of, of results, you know, you just, it's about, in the league, it's just about points. You know, you're going to get three points, one point or or zero. And so, because you can't control it, you're almost like, just tell me the result. Where do we get to? Um, and that's a, I don't know, that makes sense really. But, you know, you, you, it's harder to enjoy the games because it's all about, you know, what that result is at the end of it, which is what drives then, you know, the the next actions you've got to take the next week, um, sort of, you know, time sort of after that. So, so during all of this, what what's kind of Randy's involvement? Uh, certainly in, in the early years, is he kind of is he watching all the games on a satellite link up? Is he coming over half a dozen times a year? Are you on the phone to him every day? Oh, I mean, super involved. You know, was that majority of games in person? If he couldn't make a game, um, yeah, he'd be watching um, in the states. And then back then, I guess you know, the the TV rights were slightly different. And if you know you couldn't get the game live, then uh, yeah, you'd sort out satellite link-ups so you know he could watch absolutely every single one he'd be speaking to the manager all the time I mean we'd be in contact you know multiple times a day so it was uh, yeah very very involved I know that the, the, the budget sheets are going to differ with Champions League or you know Europa League UEFA Cup how did you come to terms with the, yourself and Randy come to terms with the disappointment of, of getting so close uh, and yet so far in, in those three years on the spin it's funny you know because we had a little sort of saying that that success is a byproduct of doing things well, and so yeah, you want to win, and yeah, you want to be as, as successful as you can, and, and you know, be that you know, winning cups or or getting into top four or whatever it was. But um, I think you managed the disappointment because it wasn't the be all and end all. It couldn't be. It was actually about building a club, and you know, sort of taking it from you know, in, in two thousand and six where. Um, it needed that that injection of 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 energy and and sort of enthusiasm and, and cash as well and and trying to build something which could be special and um, and sustainable and kind of play into the the, the fabric of, of the city and the community and the the history and the, the the fan base and so yeah you know kind of not not coming forth not making um, the Champions League you know you it smarts at the time but. It wasn't something that you're kind of like, oh, go into a deep uh, depression about because you come back and, you know, you're ready for the next season, ready for the next game. It wasn't like there were sort of hard and fast targets that we must do this, this and this. We must win a cup in this year or else it's a failure. It's a, it's a more overall um, sort of picture, really. Can you talk me through the how the Acorns deal came about? Because at the time, and even looking back on it, it was such a 
such a fantastic gesture for a Premier League club to, I don't know, it's probably, you know, to, to give up such a slice, a potential slice of, of commercial funds to help help such a good cause. Was that driven by, by Randy or by yourself or just talk us through it? Yeah, and, you know, the Acorns, you know, still is an amazing um, charity. They've got brilliant people working there and the sort of links I've had with Acorns, you know, going right back to the, those early days, is at Villa uh, uh, means so so much. I mean, we try to do all we can to support them. I mean, how it happened was um, the the head of community at the time, um, a chap called Duncan Riddle, who's now living out in Chicago and involved in in soccer um, soccer uh, in the states football to us. But um, and and Duncan did work with with Acorns, and uh, we'd been in Birmingham, and um, and he wanted to been speaking to Duncan and, and wanted to get out and see some of the the community projects and, and people that we work with at the club and Duncan sort of arranged for us to go over to the hospice in Celia. And we went over the chief executive at the time, a chap called David Strudley, pretty special. And we spent, you know, an hour or so with him and with some, uh, an incredible place it is. You know, it's a hospice. So it's not somewhere where, you know, you get great outcomes um, because it's dealing with terminally ill children but you go and walk around there and there's something magic and very special about it and, and the people and it, it it really made an impression and um and um Randy had obviously they spoken to his family about it and told them about their this incredible experience and I mean how the the idea actually happened was we were out seeking a, a shirt sponsor for the year and as always you've got like, tons of different discussions going on and normally you know there's a number that you think it's worth and people don't want to pay it they want to pay a bit less and you've got to work out well what do we do and you've got pressures from um uh, the, the kit manufacturers you know, they want to kind of get the the logos on etc and um <clears throat> and i think randy was updating his sister and i remember it because he was on the phone i was sat at the desk opposite him and so you're sort of hearing half a conversation and um he was updating her and, and i think she'd suggested well why don't you um you put the logo of that that children's hospice that you've been talking about on there and it was almost like a light bulb moment and he got off the phone and filled me in and um said let's look to do that and I then spoke to David Strudley and spoke to Duncan at the club and um and it all moved very very quickly but it was um you know, a brilliant thing to do it was great working with Acorns and giving them that that profile and um just felt very natural you probably sense I'm buttering you up before we start talking about 2010 onwards who was your favorite player the one who was kind of the best that you that you enjoyed watching, the one that you felt represented the best deal because you were in charge of helping to push it over the line, or the one that was just a thoroughly good bloke, or all three. I mean, James Milner was was pretty much all of those. His attitude and his approach and and what he brings um, on the football pitch and still does, you know. And he's, he's an amazing guy. He really is that straightforward, stand up absolutely decent um you know he's got a good sense of humor as well as i think we're sort of seeing on his social media stuff and i mean just what a player you know he would do anything for the team and and i think you know those, that time with villa and he's talked about this a little bit you know but um you know when he was playing center midfield that was absolutely his, his best position and he was outstanding that got him in the england team and you know uh, obviously was a the, the i guess where man city came in it was on the basis of those amazing performances playing in the middle for Villa. He's had a phenomenal career subsequently, but I always sort of thought his best position was, you know, centre midfield. And, um, 
loved watching him play and, and, and say just the way, way he was. I mean, special mentions as well to, I mean, Christian Benteke, that, that year, where his first year with us, he was just unplayable. And there were times when you, you watched him play and you thought, wow, this guy is just genuinely world-class. And um, you know, his confidence was sky high and he was almost unplayable at times. Um, and the, the, the other mention you know, for me of a player I just loved um, watching and was great to deal with as well was Ashley Young. And, you know, Ashley had, I think it was about four and a half years at Villa. Um, and, you know, well, he hardly missed the game. He was another player who, you know, you, you sort of rely on. And, you know, he's just so consistent, wasn't he? You know, and just, I don't know, I loved watching him. And it's been interesting. You know, we sort of, you know, went to United and again, you know, had, had no success there. But um, you know, opposition fans always seem to give him a lot of stick. I think I'm just feel really sort of fond of him just because, you know, from a, a Villa perspective, I thought he was outstanding on a, such a consistent basis. On the on the Milner one, how difficult a deal was that to do to, to get him down from from Newcastle in the first place? I remember. I think we 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 completed the deal right towards the end of the the transfer window, and so now he'd been on loan previously, hadn't he? And we tried to uh, make that permanent, and um, and Newcastle had sort of called him back, and and so he was sort of a player you're always aware of, and you know, great young player, and um, sort of from memory. You know, yeah, negotiations with, with Newcastle have probably gone on for some time. And it's always a bit of brinksmanship then and you know, transfer windows. And you know, that's why deadline day is, is, is so exciting for those people not involved in it. Um, you know, because that's the point where eventually you do reach a deal. And, you know, it's always just about a number and, uh, and these things get done. But um, so once I think you know, the, the, the technical bits were, were sorted out, um, it's pretty straightforward. I remember we played a midweek game. It was either Monday night or maybe in a, an early round of a League Cup game. And um, he'd come down, he was staying at the Marriott in um, in Birmingham just by five ways. And after the game, uh, Martin and I um, were going up to, to meet him and his agent. And um, I remember kind of Martin was following me and I got completely lost around the system and kind of driving around Birmingham trying to work out how the hell to get to the, to the Marriott. But we got there eventually and had a, had a cup of tea with him at sort of 11 o'clock at night and just, um, yeah, he was, he's a brilliant guy. Oh, I love that. The fact that Birmingham's kind of underpasses and roundabout system might have jeopardised uh, jeopardised one of the deals, but you, you got it done anyway. Yeah, and Martin was following me, so I was feeling the pressure where I'm then lost and then he's on the phone going, where are we going? And, you know, you suddenly go, oh, hang on. <laughs> In terms of your involvement around Bodymore, obviously I think you, you offices will probably well, I think you probably have offices at, at Bodymore and Villa Park, but do you have much to do with with the, the players? Or do you generally kind of you, do you remove yourself from, from the football football side of it? It's a bit of a balancing act, really. I mean, I always, um, you know, you're involved with uh, transfers when they're coming in and you, know, you get to know them, but um, I always sort of took the view of, of that's the manager's domain more than mine um and so you know very comfortable being in and around it or watching training every so often or um you know if you're up at body more than you know having lunch in the canteen with the, the manager but trying to keep a little bit sort of removed from the players you know that's that's for you know the manager and his team to 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 look after and you've got to be careful not to to tread on toes if that makes sense you know there's a lot there's an element where if you were looking at it really coldly, you know, you were involved in, in buying them and selling them and moving them on. And so, you know, the relationship was always slightly different. But no, I mean, I always found that the players, 
by and large, were you know really nice young men. You know, and footballers get a lot of a lot of stick and a lot of criticism, but they're under so much scrutiny, and certainly even more so now than than when I was involved in the game. And um, you know, a lot of the good stuff that they do gets overlooked. I guess it's not newsworthy, is it? And it's only the the times where they they maybe um, stray or make some bad uh, decisions that it really gets picked up. You touched on deadline day a moment ago, Paul. Again, to to the uninitiated, just give us a little bit of a of an insight into kind of what what was the most craziest deadline day um, deal, either coming into the club or going out the club that that, that that sticks in your mind. I think you always wanted to try to avoid being involved on the crazy deals in deadline day. And then, you know, it wasn't always possible, depending on, on circumstances. I, I mean, I think uh, there was uh, one year when um, Alan Hutton and Jermaine Jenis both signed and um, you know, that was, you know, we were over at a hospital doing medicals late at night and faxing uh, deal sheets over to the, the Premier League, at, you know, literally on a fax still, um, just on the, you know, the stroke of... Um, of the deadline, um, other crazy one was was obviously Christian Benteke as well. I think I remember you kind of pestering me nonstop. I think on the <laughs> the phone, is it done yet? Is it done yet? And I mean that was a deal where you know we had to we had to end up chartering a plane to fly him over from Belgium on on deadline day, and you know you all the logistics about coming get the medical done and um, and the like. It's um, yeah, a bit of a, a juggling act, but and it. You know, and what you're also trying to do is, is say to manage the interest and you know working with the press and you know, likes of yourself and all of the uh, you know, your sort of colleagues in the press and keeping people informed because there's such a thirst for uh, for knowledge, isn't there? But um, as I say, I imagine that's that's so much more difficult now just with the sort of prevalence of social media. I suppose at, at that time you're kind of juggling, like I say, juggling inquiries from, from myself and my colleagues and, and then you kind of probably got Randy, if he's not in the country, he, he's wanting to know what's going on. You need to be checking in with the doctors, you need to be checking in with the agents. It just must be, you must need about seven mobile phones, don't you? <laughs> yeah, no, no, good at multitasking. But, you know, it's great adrenaline and great sort of buzz. And again, you know, you have a good team around you there, you can get a lot done. And so, you know, every deal that we wanted to get done, we did. I don't think there was ever a transfer that sort of fell down because of um, sort of process or procedure. You know, really well-drilled team there. I was going to fast forward to 2010, which before we get into the territory of Martin leaving and, and, and subsequently what happened in the following years, 2010 was two trips, was it two trips to, to Wembley? So that had been the, the semi-final of the... FA Cup against Chelsea and there would have been the the defeat in, in the League Cup to, to Manchester United. Now, we know both of those games didn't end well from a results point of view, but in terms of being, you know, Aston Villa, um, working for Aston Villa at the time, what, what, what were those experiences like? Do you know what? The, the League Cup final um, was an absolute nightmare. Um, it was one where um, we, we were driving to the game and we're stuck in awful traffic, and I'm, I'm sat there with Randy, and then uh, and his his mother had come over from the states to watch it, and we get a phone call that she's already arrived at Wembley, and uh, it's meant to be a you know a box for 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 her and some uh, sort of friends to watch the game, and and it had been missed off the manifest, so they were there. It's a bit like oh, we haven't got you on the list, so suddenly you know stuck in traffic, can't get there. Um, Mrs. Lerner stuck on a cop horse at, at Wembley, truck people trying to sort of scramble you sort of go wow hang on a second lots of moving parts to to sort out got it fixed in the end but we 
we got there and um i'll never forget we were in the the, the formal um sort of piece for the the, the, the pre-match meal and you've probably got you've got hundreds of people in there, all the the football leagues um guests and sponsors and, and you know a couple of club tables ourselves and, and man united and um you know you eat and, and and i remember that randy got up to to visit the gents and he goes out just as that point, the the chairman of the league gets up and he starts doing the little speeches and he's going to refer to the the two sort of um, chairmen. And I look round because Randy hasn't come back and he was stuck outside the room. The uh, the security guard wouldn't let him back in. And I can see him. So I then get up and I go out and, you know, it's one of those, it's a man with the clipboard. And so, sorry, I started the speeches now. I can't let, let him in. And I'm like, going, no, 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 he's the owner. And, you know, he needs to be in there because he's going to get, Sort of asked to stand up and whatever, you know, and the guy says, sorry, rules are rules, can't let him in. You know, we've got this ridiculous scene playing out and I guess my stress levels are just rising and Randy's kind of going, what is going on? And um, and, and in the end, um, we couldn't get back in. So we sort of said, sod it. And we went into the concourse. I think, uh, I think we bought a, a couple of beers and just sort of had them standing there while the, the ground's filling up. And, you know, when you look back and sort of go, should have known you know the omens just were, were not good and um i remember sitting in the car uh leaving stuck in traffic again just sort of going you know obviously we've lost at this point and it was such a infuriating game because you know we should have won that game and you know you can blame the, the referee who definitely should have sent Vidic off and you know it was just one of those we didn't we didn't didn't do ourselves justice but the cup should have been ours and um yeah sitting in the car park afterwards just going God, dear, I've had, you know, the worst day. And in some way, it's such a shame because it was you know, the cup final. It should have been brilliant. But, the yeah, the hidden stuff behind the scenes was, uh, it all went wrong that day. So, yeah, so Phil Dyer must have just sent you to despair now, hadn't he? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Never forgiven him. Back then, so we're talking February, March, April time in 2010. If my memory serves me correctly, I think I upset Martin. I'm not taking the blame. But, um I can't believe I you're upsetting was... a manager, Matt. I thought you always got on with all of them really well. <laughs> Who'd have thought it, eh? Who'd have thought it? Um, but I think it was the 7-0 defeat. I think Villa lost 7-0 at, at, at Chelsea, at Stamford Bridge, in the league back then. Uh, and I wrote a, a fairly damning match report. But I seem to recall around that time that, that Martin was... And I know we've got to be a little bit careful what we ask, what I ask and what you can say. But I seem to remember that time Martin was getting a little bit irritable Anyway, um, my sense was that he was kind of really wanting to chase heavily the, that top four place, and it was getting close, but but, but not quite there. When was the, when was when did you first get the vibes that that Martin wasn't completely kind of happy with with his lot at Villa anymore? I suppose it's sort of built. I mean, again, you know, Martin you know, is a, a, a great competitor, and that's why he you know, he's been so successful in his career and yeah you know it was we were knocking on the door but but weren't able to get through but in the league you know you'd say the the the, the cup final the the, the semi-final it, it sort of builds and you know probably that was that time where you know Man City and the investment that they'd had um from their new owners was starting to really bear fruit and I think you got that sense that that the the, the Premier League was shifting again you know and the resources that that they had were just and have, you know, just uh, phenomenal. And so while the traditional order was breaking up, it felt like he was someone who back in 06 hadn't been seen as a, a threat or didn't have the that 
sort of backing or support were were going to be up there. So I can sort of see, you know, just that that sense of of being able to to win, being able to to achieve, you know, getting harder and and yeah, you know, that that would obviously, you know, sort of frustrate someone like Martin who just wanted to just wanted to win. And that was, you know, I said in a, in a good way because that's what drove him. So was the sense that kind of Martin was feeling that and Randy was feeling it at the same time that all of a sudden the kind of upwards curve that the club was on was going to become it was going to become a lot more challenging and probably require a lot more investment to kind of hang on to the coattails of Manchester City. I think it's just that things were going to be need to be sort of different, you know, and where we'd had this sort of period of of, of rebuilding the club and you know off the pitch as well as on the pitch, it was probably that that sense of um, needing to now. Uh, sort of trade a little bit more. It was never going to kind of keep continuing. I don't think that would be, that was not, Randy wasn't going to be a, a checkbook owner and he'd always made that point and you would have sat in press conferences with him. You know, he always talked about building a sustainable club, wanting to leave uh, that sort of legacy rather than just, you know, writing checks. Um, and, you know, you're not going to compete with a nation state such as uh, those who who'd bought Man City. So, yeah, I suppose there's that sense of, of things were going to need to change but at the same time you know we had a squad as you finish that season who've, who've come sixth who've been challenging all year long for um for the top four who've reached the league cup final reached an fa cup semi-final you've kind of got a lot to work with it wouldn't say it was you know it wasn't all doom and gloom but it was uh that sense that you know, we're not going to be going out and just writing more checks in addition to those which have all been been sort of spent what was the, the, the tipping point then? Because obviously we, we five days before the start of the season, 2010-11. Uh, again, if memory serves me correctly, during pre-season, Martin, well, Martin was Martin, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, you know, sometimes happy, sometimes a, a little bit kind of snappy. But he, he comes to see you just on the eve of the season. Do you, do you know or can you say to this day what it was that, that, that caused, caused him to, to say enough was enough? Well, you know, you'll have to ask him that, Matt, when you get him on the the podcast, won't you? Uh, but I mean, it was it was. I don't think he takes my calls, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, it, it, you know, it built up, and, and as you say, you know, uh, when did he leave? I think it was the the Monday or the Tuesday, you know, the season starting on a Saturday, so it's pretty unusual, and 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 he felt that you know the the challenge ahead it wasn't for him, so it was. What I say is, I really it was such a shame. And I think you know all around um, club uh, the the individuals. It just sort of felt like four years. So much had been built and achieved, and yeah, you know maybe it was going to get harder to keep going and to keep building. But sort of you know, the the dream had always to have a, a longer term project. And you know look at um, what what Ferguson was doing at United and Wenger obviously at Arsenal and sort of managing them through the the move from Highbury to, to Emirates and, you know, sort of, you know, some years are going to be more successful on the pitch than others, but, you know, you're always there or thereabouts. And that was you know, what the, the, the hope was, but yeah, it wasn't to be. And as I say, I think um, you know, really sad for, for all concerned. Can you recall the meeting when he came knocking on your door? I can. Yeah. No, we were over at Bodymore Heath and Martin came in and uh, he had a, a letter in his, pocket and he got it out read it to me and left it with me and um and off he went so um yeah no definitely one that sticks in the mind I think we were toying with the headline of going with gone in gone in 60 seconds back then but was it a little bit longer than that (laughs) Uh, it may have been 65 or so yeah (laughs) 
So, so moving on from there, you, you're left with a football club that has finished sixth three years in a row, uh, has been at Wembley twice the previous season, and has got some pretty special players um, in the squad still. But you've got no manager, and you've got five days before the season kicks off. Was that one of your biggest challenges, you know, picking up the pieces of what had happened that summer? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was a challenging time. And I suppose, um, you know, Kevin McDonald stepped in as, as caretaker manager. And, you know, that's one of the, the moments actually where, where James Milner was uh, phenomenal because, you know, been in cult, obviously Man City were, were looking to complete a transfer and, and it was quite far progressed and um, a lot of players would you know, with the game coming up would have sort of gone right I'm not playing here until my deal's done I don't want to risk anything um, and I remember sort of being in a meeting Randy sort of sat, sat down with James and said um, look James we really need you on Saturday this has happened the manager has left um, we've got to sort of try to carry the club through you've been amazing you're an amazing player an amazing young man we need to put out the best possible team that we can and get you know the show on the road, get off to a positive start right now, sort of send the right messages out to the world. So, you know, please, you know, for me, will you, will you play? Don't call in with a bad back or a, a twinge or something like that. Um, and, you know, you know, Man City, we know, you know you've made your mind up and the deal's going to happen now and we'll get that to happen, but I need you for Saturday. And, um, and he did, and he played. And, you know, again, I remember that game really was, probably, you know, first 10 minutes or so, and there was a 50-50 ball and he went in and, Felt like in in my mind, you know, all of Villa Park kind of held its breath, but he won the ball, got up, and he ended up scoring as well, didn't he? And kind of you know went off with a few minutes before the end to a, a standing ovation, and it's this that that sense of what a what an individual, and he did that for he did it for Randy, he did it for Villa, he did it for the fans, and he you know, did it because he's a proper decent person, and I think that sort of helped to at least start, you know. Get, get the season off to the, the right sort of start. And um, you realise that you know, managers and players, um, owners, chief execs, they all come and go, don't they, in a football club? Um, and someone leaving is an opportunity for, for somebody else. And you know, that's where you very quickly then move on and uh, look for, for the next manager, because you have to. Speaking of, of the next manager, uh, this is one I haven't managed to fall out with, actually. Um, Gerard Houllier. Um, talk us through talk us through your time with Gerard because he obviously arrived at the club um, just a, a man with gravit- gravitas I suppose he'd, he'd kind of achieved what he's a- achieved in France and, and with Liverpool um, and perhaps perhaps I, I, I speak a bit too fondly with him because he was one of the ones who didn't kind of try and kick me out of body more but I think he was on the verge of something when when kind of his healthy issues intervened I mean what, what were your thoughts of his time in charge? Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. You know, lovely man, just you know, lived and breathed football. You know, you were out for for dinner with Gerard, and you know, he'd be sat there, he'd have a little notebook, um, and he'd always be pulling it out and sketching out, you know, players he'd been scouting or looking at and formations and what he just lived. It was, um, I love that. It's very infectious that that enthusiasm for the game. And um, you know, he'd come in and, and he had his approach and his philosophy, and, and hadn't had a preseason. Comes in sort of early September time, which is tricky and challenging and, and had started to get things to work and, and had a lot of plans for, for the summer, um, which were exciting. And, you know, I won't go into them, but, you know, names of players that you look now and go, blimey, they were there, you know, and sort of stuff which was in the offing. But, yeah, sadly, the, um, 
you know, the, the health issues just derailed that. And, you know, you do, you look back and go, sort of what if, you know, it could have been a sliding doors moment, couldn't it really? Um, and, and, and it had, had he stayed sort of fit and healthy and been able to um, sort of build, then you know, there was no reason not to be optimistic about that. So it was a real shame, but um, good to see that, that he recovered and, and is fit and well now. I'm fascinated to know what was in this notebook, Paul. You've, um, <laughs> you, you, <laughs> you're not, you're not, you, can you not divulge a couple of the names? You know what, it's just you know, a lot of players, who certainly, <laughs> certainly from France, who, you know, over the, the subsequent years, you know, did come over to England and, and were successful and sort of, you know, again, Gerard was using his knowledge and using his connections. So, um, yeah, it would have been, uh, yeah, he, uh, he's, a, he's a really you know, top man and, um, yeah, a lot of affection for Gerard as well. Can you remember having the, the circumstances of, of when you received the call that, that you know, he'd, he'd been taken ill with his heart problem again? Yeah, um, got a memory, I think it was a North London derby on that night and I was watching the game and um, the my phone went and it was Gary McAllister calling me. And you know when, I don't know, it's to half nine at night and you get a phone call which isn't normal and I just had that sort of horrible sense of foreboding. Uh, it was bad news and then you know, at that point you know, he was in the hospital or in an ambulance on the way to the, the QE and um, you're sort of going right there's no there's no manual for how to deal with this one and obviously you know my primary worries about him and his health and his family and what's going on and then you know sort of letting um those people who need to know from our point of view you know obviously the the owner but the um sort of the press and media manager because these things will get out quickly and there's going to be loads of questions and you know the so you sort of just click into gear and um and sort of works yeah that's a long long night that one Two months previously, the club had smashed the transfer record to sign Darren Bent. And I remember back then there was a perception that Martin had gone and that, 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 that Villa were kind of, you know, I don't know, reining in the spending a little bit. And then, then Darren Bent comes in for, for big money. So what was the, and again, apologies for, for jumping all over the place, but what, what was the thinking when, when Bent, was, was Bent was signed? We needed goals. And strikers cost, you know, guarantee goals or as good as you know, cost a lot of money. Randy was prepared to support and back Gerard. No, again, he'd come in, in in September, hadn't had pre-season, knew what he was trying to do. And in that short term, we needed goals to get through the rest of that season and, you know, look to build with with Gerard. And um, it was getting a, a sign and you know, sometimes this can get, get lost in, in, in time or forgotten. But, you know, of the owner absolutely doing the right thing by his manager and also by the club. And and it worked, didn't it? You know, and his first game was that night game, Monday night, I think, against Man City. And they just signed Zeko and, um, and Darren scored the, the goal. It's probably our only shot on goal that night, but we, we won 1-0. And um, and it all started to, to sort of kick upwards. And I mean, I think we finished ninth that year uh, in the end. So it was quite a second half of the season and, and he scored a, um, a hat full of goals. And so, yeah, you know, Sort of what what could have been, hey? So he's, he's clinching a signing and one that works and one one that's kind of universally welcomed. Is that is that the CEO's equivalent of scoring a winning goal? <laughs> I think when they work, uh, when they say success as many fathers, don't they? You know, um, and <laughs> it's always the manager's decision, uh, of course. But uh, no, yeah, you definitely take 
take satisfaction from that. And, you know, you've sort of been involved behind the scenes and <clears throat> and helped to to you know negotiate or get it over the line and manage all of the different issues. And so yeah, to see someone make the debut and knock in the winner and you know crowd go wild and you know, three points in the bag is uh, yeah very satisfying. Next after Gerard was was. Alex McLeish. I don't know where to, where to begin, really, because I suppose we spoke to Alex a couple of days ago, actually, and he he was was reminiscing about that year. What was your feeling, Paul? Because I think there were several managers who, obviously, Gerard. We pretty much know from April time that Gerard's not going to be able to fit enough to to come back and, and work in a high pressure job like managing Aston Villa. And I think, as per usual, kind of people like me are speculating with half a dozen names of who could replace him. It eventually transpires that the the manager from the rivals down the road, who, who's won the cup, but got Birmingham City relegated, is the guy who's coming in to to manage Villa. And then I wouldn't say all hell breaks loose, but there's a little little bit of dissent. I think it's fair to say. You know, Alex is a you know top guy, isn't he? And um, I'm sure that came across when when you were speaking with him, and uh, absolutely get the um, why it was contentious. Um, at the time and you know what I always remember about that year in, in particular was that I think it was just it may have been Boxing Day or between Christmas and New Year we'd gone down and beaten Chelsea 3-0 or 3-1 and um, uh, you know uh, even Stephen Ireland scored that day and so we turned a corner but again I think we were probably about ninth or 10th in the table and you know were things just starting to turn there was that sense of you know what um yeah, no, this isn't quite the uh, so bad. And um, we had a game then, and again, again my memory sort of, uh, it's either New Year's Day or, or the 2nd of Jan, and we were playing Swansea, and um, actually been a massive surge in, in tickets, and that sense of slight sort of optimism, and maybe those little green shoots, and maybe that sense of Alex winning people around. And sort of about three or four minutes into the game, I think the ball comes back, Stephen Warnock slipped, unfortunately, Swansea run through and, and score and we ended up losing. And, you know, it was almost that, you know, you had about two or three minutes where there was a sense that maybe this is going to work. And, and um, you know, I'm slightly sort of dra- dramatising it in my, in my mind, but you know, just to make that point that it wasn't always going to be sort of, it, didn't, it wasn't always written from the start that it wasn't going to work. There were moments where it could have. Ultimately, it didn't. We lost that game and, and the second half of the year was, was really, really tough. Then and I mean that's why you know, we made the change at the end of um, end of that season and I think you know it was uh, no surprise to anybody really and it didn't work uh, unfortunately but it wasn't it wasn't inevitably going to not work. What was it like, kind of, when the appointment was was first made and again whether Randy was over over um, to witness the, the fallout from it or, or whether he was in the states and you've got to kind of communicate to him that these, these graffiti on the outside Bodymore and there's a, there's a gathering of several hundred fans outside Villa Park. How, how did that feel, Paul? Was it just kind of, as in football, that the only way to turn this is by the football manager winning football matches? Yeah, yeah. You know, and I suppose, you know, certainly Randy had that, that belief that he'd appointed the right man. You then got to let the games sort of play out and um, you know, strong team, good team, loads to... To sort of work with and um but yeah ultimately wasn't uh wasn't a year which which you look back on fondly which is a shame you know and Alex was a great guy to work with um and you know sort of seen him actually a few times sort of since and he's always someone who again you know um I've got a lot of lot of respect for. Can you remember your reaction when when Randy suggested Alex McLeish? I remember having conversations and just 
um, sort of weighing up the, um, the obvious challenges, you know, bringing a manager from, from your rivals. Um, no one's naive to think that that isn't going to be pretty contentious. That, that ends up being the, the decision and you sort of think, right, no, let's, let's, let's go for this. And your, your full sort of support is behind, you know, the manager and the team. And again, everyone's just looking to get positive results for the club. You know, and Alec, you know, really wanted it. He really, it was a great opportunity. And, um, and I'm sure he, you know, it's sort of what he was saying to you, Matt. But, you know, um, it was a shame. A shame that it didn't work out. I don't think that the Villa fans held the Birmingham City thing against him. I think, and you, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think what, what did for Alex eventually was the fact that the second half of the season, it kind of Villa, Villa stayed up in installments rather than the fact that he was Birmingham City. I agree. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, again, isn't it, you know, like memory and hindsight are, uh, can sort of play tricks on you, but you're absolutely right. And that was my point about that Chelsea game and you know what happened against Swansea, that, you know, there was a sense that things were, um, that this might work. And it didn't in the end, but that was because of results and the second half of that season was just brutal, wasn't it? And we just sort of couldn't get a, couldn't get a win and, and limp to the, the end. I think, you know, the last game of the season was, you know, away at Norwich and, um, we weren't technically safe. I think we were probably three points clear of of 18th and had a, you know, sort of, I think it was a seven, positive seven goal difference. And they'd scored two in 20 minutes. And I definitely had a moment of thinking, blimey, if we keep conceding every 10 minutes, then, uh, you know, we may actually be in danger. And, you know, we didn't, but it was, it sort of summed up the last period. But there was a game that year, even, in around Easter time. We played Bolton at home. And, We'd absolutely battered them, couldn't score. And then, you know, second half, um, they scored and ended up winning 1-0. But, you know, like, even that day, you know, the team were giving everything. The, the crowd, the fans were right there and supporting the team. Couldn't get the ball in the net, end up conceding. And, you know, the last half hour was, um, was pretty horrible uh, for all concerned. And, you know, but that's, again, the nature of sport, isn't it? You know, you don't get to, um, to know um, and in a parallel universe, maybe we would have, you know, we'd have won that game. We'd have beaten Swansea back at the start of the year, and things would have been different. Sadly, they weren't. Can you remember kind of what the process would have been when you're driving away from Carrow Road that night on the, the last day of the season? Because obviously, Alex is dismissed the, the following morning. Again, is that is that a phone call with yourself and Randy? Is that something that you kind of would have known ahead of that game, or how did it play out? Yeah, I think I spoke with, with Alex and suggested that, that he and I meet the next day, sort of said that it was we needed to part ways and it wasn't a surprise to, to him. Um, I wouldn't have thought and um, not a nice conversation, but you, know, you try to do it in a, in a respectful way. And, you know, um, it's hard because you build personal relationships with people, but um, it obviously needed doing. And I think... Uh, again, for everyone's best interest, and most importantly, the clubs, it needed doing um, quickly so that you, know, you could draw a line under that and then move on. You mentioned class and doing things the right, doing things the right way, and this is something that I wanted to, to ask you about. The only other thing I want to mention from that season um, was the way that Alex and yourself, the club, the fan base, his teammates, and the man himself dealt with the news, the news surrounding Stylian Petrov. Now, again, you, you referred earlier to something not being in the manual. Now, that, that's certainly not in the manual, but, you know, it's probably as, as much as anything, and I praised Alex for this, and I praised yourself for it. I thought it was, I thought Villa, Villa dealt with it brilliantly. Yeah, I mean, I mean thank God that, that Stan, you know, 
recovered and uh, that was the most important thing. And it, it was really hard. We'd, I remember we'd, we'd played Arsenal and uh, been beaten and, and we were sort of driving back up and I'd spoken to, to Alex on the phone and he sort of said you know, something wasn't right with, with Stan. He just had no energy. And um, the next day I'd spoken to the, the doc and, and he said he was taking him for blood tests. Um, and you know when you're sort of going, whoa, what? And I said it could be leukaemia. Um, and again, you know, you just sort of, your mind's reeling. You're thinking someone's just had a poor game or, you know, was off the pace. But, um, and I said at that time, that's when we were really starting to struggle. Um, but yeah, the, the, the news about that was, was hard. And, and, and Alec was great and, and his, you know, his backroom team were as well. And, um, yeah, we went down with Stillian to, uh, and his wife down to, to London where, and I was there when he went in and the docs confirmed that he, like, he had uh, leukemia and we got the train back up and we just said, look, we'll support you and with you all the way. And um, that's all you can do, isn't it, really? And you know, certainly that was, was that was the manager, that was you know, the owner as well. And, and you pulled together and then we saw that the fans were, were incredible as well. And I'm sure you know, Stan got a lot of uh, strength from the, the, the love that, that you know, everyone involved with the, the, the club and probably football more widely showed him. So just just moving on from, from that season to, to Paul Lambert's... Um, time in charge so can I did did the reception that Paul Lambert got during that game at, at Norwich when Alex Alex Blessing was was getting a battering from the fans but but um I don't know Paul was being being anointed as the as the new messiah do those kind of things have any influence when when you you're looking to recruit the next boss no no <laughs> what he achieved how he achieved and not just at Norwich but but beforehand we'd actually um gone with and I th- want to say maybe I'll check this afterwards I think it was sort of um, January 07 um, we'd gone with Martin myself and Randy and Martin had gone down to watch Wickham play Chelsea in the second leg of or the first leg maybe of the, the League Cup semi-final and Paul was manager of Wickham um, back then and so you know someone who you know you were aware of and sort of follow their his career um Sort of really, sort of since that point. So yeah, it wasn't a, an overnight decision. It wasn't one which was uh, was swayed by um, just what happened on that that day in uh, at the end of the season. It was a far sort of longer um, understanding of what he had been doing and the way he'd done it. And certainly the the, the time at Norwich was pretty remarkable when he took take them up from League One and through the Championship and, and had a very successful year, first year in the Premier League as well. It's a bit of a roller coaster, wasn't it? If memory serves me right. Yeah, um, again, you know, I've I've gone with with all the managers and and Paul was um, someone, you know, very formal, still in touch with with Paul as well and um, really liked the guy. And um, yeah, you know, it was was a bit of a roller coaster and he was, you know, trying to do, again, trying to do something special. And, and, you know, I mean, someone like like, like Christian came in and and that season, while it took a while to get going, you know, um, once we got a bit of momentum, um, you sort of felt, hang on, there's something here, you know, and you could see some of these young players coming through and, um, and certainly you know, that summer um, after his first year, you know, a lot of interest in, in Christian um, from from lots of clubs, but you know, being able to sign him up and sort of feeling like, hang on, we've got someone here who can we can sort of build around. Um, it was a roller coaster. There were moments which were tough. Um, I remember there was one game we played away at Reading in uh, Paul's first year and um, 
I think we were probably 19th and 20th at the time. So we're in a real six-pointer and we went behind um, a Nathan Baker own goal um, from about one yard out. And, you know, you sort of go, oh, dear. Um, but Christian scored and we got back in it and, and won the game. And I just remember kind of being about one of the, the most difficult games to ever watch because it was so important that we, we got the win and got the momentum going. And, you know, big part of that was obviously, you know, say, you know Benteke's goals, but also Paul's belief Paul's self-belief and belief in the team. And I think that's uh, helped that, that team to, to you know, achieve and make sure that, that the club stayed in the league. You mentioned Benteke. Was it the first, was it after his first season when there was a bit of kind of, I don't know, I don't think he threw his toys out the pram exactly, but there was perhaps him and his agent starting to believe the hype a little bit too much. And was it then when he didn't, he didn't go on pre-season? Yeah, it was that year, wasn't it? Uh, that was, I think before we got the... Uh, the new contracts are sorted out. Um, but, you know, it, it done brilliantly. And, yeah, you recognise those you know, striker and goals so essential that um, we're going to need to revisit his contract. You, you want to. You want to sort of extend it um, as well. So it's just part and parcel of, of, of the games that go on, really, Matt. You know, he'd made such an impression. And when there's interest from other clubs and they're uh, in, in the agent's ear or in a player's ear, you... Um, you recognise that, but you know, we were clear that we weren't going to sell him. And in the end, the right thing happened and the approach worked because we were able to uh, keep him, re-sign him, and you know, he stayed a Villa player. And again, that was you know, important for the start of um, Paul's second year. In those situations, you have to kind of lay on the charm through gritted teeth sometimes. It's no point, it, you know, even if people are annoying you, it's no point upsetting them if you, if you, need, if you need them kind of thing. You said a phrase, you've got to have no memory in football. Ball, you know, and you've got to be able to have a stand-up row with someone one day, and then the next time you need them, you know, will be you know agents who you may fall out with over one player, and you know the manager says, "Oh, we're looking at so and so, who's his agent?" Oh, no, it's them. And but you know, it's in everyone's interest really to get along. So you know, it's an emotional industry, and so yeah, that's where that that no memory piece came in, and you've got to be able to work with people. No point sort of cutting your nose off to spite your face. Again, just a bit of insight into into how how players work. Has anybody ever, you know, has anybody ever had any kind of diva demands or something? Who'd say, "Well, listen, the, the wages that you offer me is fine, but I want kind of, you know, in the same way that kind of your superstar performers want certain flowers in the dressing room." The blue M and M's or something like that. That's <laughs> it. Yeah, it's really, any footballers who have had the most bizarre riders that that, that you've had to <laughs> kind of uh, acquiesce to. No, no, you know what. None spring to mind at all. I think they're all pretty straightforward, as I say, and, and easy to deal with. We didn't get any weird demands like that. One of the funniest type of things was actually um, going back just to the purchase of the, the club where uh, it was about the, the number plate that, that Mr. Ellis uh, had on his car, AV1, <clears throat> which um, actually belonged to the club. And so it was done after the, the deal. And, and, you know, he'd ask, can he keep it? And Randy said, yeah, 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 fine. No, you can have that. Because of the, the rules around the, the, the purchase and say with the, the stock market, um, you couldn't gift it to, to Doug. You only gift to a charity. So he had to pay the market value, which I think it was from memory about 20, 25 grand. So yeah, it was, uh, that was about the weirdest uh, sort of part of any transaction, I think, all about a number plate. So back, back, back into your final years at Villa, when did you realise that I don't know. You needed a fresh start, or that 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 Randy. You know, 
I presume, and again, I don't know how to phrase this. Was there a deterioration in your relationship with Randy? Do you still get on now, or how did how did it come about that you thought it was the right thing to to go when you did go? He he asked me to come sort of do a slightly different role, which would have in, involved um, relocating back to America primarily. And um, so you know, when I'd first started working for for him, I'd lived over there. But I think sort of you know, you fast forward eight years. Um, my life had changed. Mary just had my, my, my eldest son um, at the time and sort of settled here. And so it just felt like that wasn't going to be an option for me. And so, you know, while it was um, very sad from a point of view of, of um, for me, not just leaving Villa, but leaving, you know, working with, with him and the family, um, it was the right thing to do, you know, for my, my personal circumstances. And just on Randy, do you think, that, again, you'd probably say, ask him this, but do you think his time with Villa had kind of run its course anyway and that, that initial excitement and enthusiasm kind of had, had started to wane? Yeah, I think that's a, a fair enough analysis, isn't it, really? And, you know, again, uh, you know, it'd be for him to sort of to speak about that, but, you know, but his life started to shift and to change and, um, and the sort of, um, I guess, desire or need to be spanning two continents and spending time over here just sort of shifted. And um, so I think, um, you know, certainly, you know, life is very different in 2014 and 2015 than it had been back in 2006. What was what was the, 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 the kind of worst headache that you had, really? Either an incident or, a you know, a series of incidents or a time? I mean, the, the lowest moment... Um, was when we lost to Millwall in the fourth round of the FA Cup. It was a Friday night. We'd um, you know we'd, we'd had the the infamous Bradford uh, League Cup semi final, uh, the second leg, and then you know, we'd uh, we'd gone out and you know all hell had broken loose, and um, you know that was pretty low. And then we had this game. I'm sure it was a fourth round game against Millwall, and it was you know Friday night and driven down to the Den and and. Um, uh, one of the sort of colleagues from work who used to go to all the away games, we'd got down to Wickham services and he'd had a phone call that said his father had passed away. And so he had to get out and go back to Birmingham. And, you know, like when, again, just nothing good was happening and we get down there and it was a horrible night. And um, I remember Charles and Zogby was getting racially abused by the Millwall fans and it was foggy and cold. And um, I think we, 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 Darren Bent scored and then they'd equalised. You know, you sat there going, this is an awful week. Um not going to get home to one in the morning, and but God, dear, look, I'll take the draw. We'll get back to Villa Park. Let's just get get through this. And then you know, right at the end of the game, they get a corner, and I'm sort of sat there. And, and again, it's putting my mind playing tricks with me. But I'm just seeing it's Danny Shitu kind of trotting up from the back, and I'm sort of there going, "Someone's got to what pick up number four. They've got to pick up number four. You know, number." And lo and behold, it's like in slow motion, the, um, the corner comes over and. And Danny Shitu knocks it in, and uh, and we lose. And I remember just sort of sitting in their 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 boardroom afterwards, sort of feeling like, God dear, you know, where do we go from here? And couldn't get hold of anyone on the phone. And you know, you're just there thinking, well. So that was that was definitely um, that sort of lowest point. And then we sort of said that actually the the second half of of that season um, things picked up. And also, what about um, what about the kind of the the funniest or the the happiest moment then of your of your time at the club? I don't know. I mean, I loved it. You know, it was a, such a, a an honour and a privilege to to be involved. And I mean, Villa's a, a brilliant club. Um, 
uh, you know, it's just the, the best. It really, really is. And, um, you know, through that, I got involved with the FA and FA Council. I was actually on the FA board for a short while. So sort of um, loads of opportunities and, and loads of great memories, um, different games. I mentioned like the Everton game or um, other great wins. I mean, one of the, the, I guess it was slightly bizarre, was uh, the, the, the Peace Cup. Uh, final, which you, you you were probably there, weren't you? And uh, I was. you know, one of these these odd preseason tournaments, and it was funded by uh, the Reverend Moon and the Moonies, and um, you know, we sort of got involved, and there was you know, quite good sort of appearance fees, and uh, we I think we'd lost the first game, we ended up sort of somehow um, getting through um, to the final, and because we're all booked to go home, and so you're suddenly having to extend your stay and get into the hotel, and we played the final against Juventus in, in Seville in the, I think it was the Olympic Stadium they called it wasn't it and it was this huge 60 odd thousand seat stadium and I don't know sort of few thousand fans there and um, it was just bizarre I mean, we actually got invited to meet Reverend Moon so Randy and I go up into this sort of central um, room that's somewhere in the bowels of the, the stadium there's all armed guards all around him we go in and there's this chap who's sort of 90 year old I think um, Korean who didn't speak a word of English and sort of trying to bow and sort of present uh, some little gift to, to Randy. We've got a villa pennant to give and sort of get, get out of there and go, that's bizarre. Um, and then uh, we ended up winning. And I think I remember um, Barry Bannon, I think you know, like Shane Lowry, I think had taken the penalty, but I always remember Barry um, picking up the ball and, you know, sort of from the halfway line, walking up to the penalty spot. And, um, you know, he looked tiny in that, that giant empty stadium. And uh, you got Buffon in goal, one of the world's greatest goalkeepers. And, and Barry knocked it in... Um, we won a couple of million euros, I think, off the back of that and uh, actually used it the next day to finalise the, the Fabian Delft deal. <laughs> so um, but that was a surreal one. Yeah, but we got some silverware. No, that's brilliant. Just wanted to say thank you so much for your time, Paul. It's been really, really enjoyed kind of taking a wonder down memory lane with you. Thank you for listening to Claret and Blue, an Aston Villa podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, then please let us know. We love hearing your feedback. We'll be back soon with another episode. Until then, up the villa. Up the villa.